morning, church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll pick up this morning in our study of the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15. It was a song that was very popular in churches in the early 2000s entitled, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Indeed. It wasn't very theologically rich. In fact, in hearing the title of the song, you've heard most of its lyrics. It cried out repetitiously, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Now, it didn't go on to describe how we have the eyes of our hearts opened. But it did underscore a great need that all Christians have. The need to behold who God is, that we might worship Him with greater fullness and fervency. Thankfully, we have better songs to sing that were written before that song and that have been written since then. But the need that that song highlighted is still a very real need that Christians have today. And, in fact, as we come to the text this morning, we understand that it shows a need that Christians have had throughout all of history. A need that has that the people of God had needed to acknowledge throughout all time and places. When we study a book like Ephesians, we might be tempted to think that it's rather irrelevant to us. After all, it's almost two millennia old. They didn't have the technology that we have today. They didn't enjoy the same access to the Scriptures that we have today. Their culture was so different than ours. Or was it? The reality is that when we come to the book of Ephesians, we're reading the inspired words of God that were written to a culture that's not all that different from our own. Ephesus was a wealthy city that consisted of a a blend of various cultures and ethnicities that all had competing commitments and priorities. Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility, among other things. The worship of Artemis involved various forms of sexual promiscuity that, that influenced what was considered to be sexually acceptable Activity throughout their culture. And it was into these circumstances that Paul penned the words that we consider this morning. He determined that amidst all of the cultural influences of the day, what these Christians needed was to have their thoughts and their lives shaped by God through the Scriptures. So we find him praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened in the text this morning. And our need today remains the same as the brothers and sisters that first received this letter from Paul. 
the whole of what we consider from the text today, and really for the next uh, few weeks, is a prayer that the Apostle offers to God on behalf of these believers at Ephesus. And as we make our way through verses 15 to 18 today, we'll see it break down into two categories. First, we find the confidence of Paul's prayer for them. And then, secondly, we'll notice the content of his prayer for them. So we see first Paul's confidence to pray for them, and then the content of his prayer for them. Those big headings in mind, let's look to the text together and hear the words of the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, friends. Father, it is that that we ask for this morning. We do pray now, Lord, that in looking to your word, that you would, in fact, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Oh God, we, we pray with the psalmist, that your word would become a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. And God, we ask these things not just for knowledge's sake. Father, we pray now that as we consider your word, you would change us by your word. That you would Move us from one degree of glory to another so that we might greater reflect the glory of Christ in a greater way. That we might be like Him. Father, we, we pray that You would work by Your Spirit and through Your Word now. Please, Lord, keep me free from error and be pleased at what You see here. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're to consider this morning is the the confidence of Paul's prayer for those at Ephesus. It's interesting that before Paul even makes clear that he's in prayer for the Ephesian Christians, he clarifies why he can pray with confidence for what he does. Paul moves quickly from the praise of God in the text that we've been considering for the last several weeks the praise of God to prayer for God's people. He's just detailed the glorious work of God in salvation. And out of that, he moves to pray for the sanctification of God's people, which is instructive in and of itself to us. This is the consistent pattern of biblical writers, friends, to pray to God in light of what he's already done and who he's already revealed himself to be. It's also the continual pattern of biblical writers to only call for man's devoted action in response to God's divine accomplishment. 
the imperative always follows the indicative. As such, Paul says that he is praying for them for this reason. What reason? Because, he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So Paul says there are two reasons why he prays for them in this way. The first is their faith in the Lord Jesus. It's of of utmost importance that we recognize that Paul is not grateful for the presence of general faith among the Ephesian Christians. You know, many people call themselves people of faith who have no right to go before God or to be brought before the Lord in the manner that Paul brings these individuals before God. In times of perhaps unwanted medical diagnosis or in times when the the contract or the sale may fall through at work, but you remain hopeful for good outcomes, people might say, man, you never lose faith. But the question is, faith in what? Faith for faith's sake is meaningless. To be a person of faith only has meaning and significance in direct relation to the object of your faith. And Paul here defines the only faith that there is to rejoice in. That is faith in the Lord Jesus. Over time, the Lord Jesus, with his sacrificial atoning death, has proven to be the object of these Ephesians' faith. They have trusted and they continue to trust in the redemptive work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their only hope of salvation. And that is the faith that Paul says is worthy of thanksgiving to God. Because that is the faith that makes that that, that, that takes excuse me a miracle of God to produce. That is the only sort of faith that matters. Because that is the faith that saves. Not faith in faith. Not faith in themselves. Not faith in anything other than the person of the Lord Jesus and His sacrificial death and resurrection from the grave. Paul says he's thankful for this faith that they have in Christ. But, for Paul, a claim... To trust in Jesus for salvation would not even be enough to rejoice in. James is clear elsewhere that faith, apart from works, is dead. It's no good. That kind of claim to faith is phony, James would say. The only faith that's worthy of praising God for is faith that changes us. Faith that moves us toward a certain kind of living. Therefore, the apostle joins with his observation of their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love toward all the saints. The consistent witness of the New Testament is that love is the litmus test of true faith in Christ. The apostle John puts it plainly, 
where we read from 1 John chapter 4 earlier, verse 20 and 21, I'll remind you. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And Jesus says this is no secondary matter. In John chapter 13, verse 35, we read, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying that love for fellow believers is how the world will know that we belong to him. The scriptures are clear Friends, that if we have experienced the love of God and His blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then we will become a loving people. And not just loving in our attitudes, but loving in our actions toward one another. Again, James says it bluntly. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, James says. It's famously recorded that Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. But according to the word of God, that's simply not possible. Paul has been unequivocally clear that to be redeemed is to be united to Christ by faith. Or or rather to be in him. That's the continual refrain we've seen in Ephesians 1. By faith, we are mysteriously, but truly, joined together with Christ. Therefore, to love Christ necessitates loving His people. And where does the New Testament tell us that we find Christ's people? In His church. Just a few verses down in verses 22 and 23. Look there. Paul says that God has put all things under Christ's feet and given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. If you want to see those who are identified with and united to Christ, where do we look? The church. So, friends, if you say you love Christ, then you must also love His church. But why is it that love is this metric that the New Testament uses to measure the authenticity of one's faith? Obviously because of this union between Christ and His people. Obviously because a a, A true experience of the sacrificial love of God awakens us to the glorious nature of sacrificial love on a human level. But beyond that, it it is the the mark of true faith because in our natural condition, 
the nature of our relationship to others is hostility and hatred. But the gospel comes and it changes us. And the gospel brings reconciliation between not just God and man, but man with fellow men. And so love becomes this metric by which true faith is measured. Now, to to be clear, the, the scriptures nowhere advocate for acts of love to be rendered in order to gain salvation. Rather, this is the natural outworking of those who've come to know a loving God. The Apostle Peter makes this clear when he issues the command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, he will sort out those who profess to know him as sorting out sheep from goats. And what does he identify as the distinguishing factor between righteous sheep and unrighteous goats? Acts of love. He does not say that the sheep earned their entrance into the kingdom by their love. Their love merely evidences that they are sheep and not goats. A sheep doesn't will itself to be as it is. A sheep does not will itself to grow soft wool instead of goat's hair. The wool grows because its DNA determines it. So also, a Christian doesn't eke out love for others in spite of their true disposition of heart. It's a product of the new birth from a new seed. Because of this report that Paul has received about the presence of faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards all the saints, he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And notice again where Paul's thanksgiving is directed toward. It is not directed toward the Ephesians as though they were to credit for their faith in Christ and love toward all the saints. No, his thanksgiving is directed toward God. Paul has laid out so clearly already, it is God alone who is to credit for the spiritual life and vitality among his people. And it is indeed something to rejoice about. Church, one thing that we glean from this text is that it is no natural thing for people to trust in Christ for salvation and subsequently to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It is no natural thing. This is a miracle of God. God has to overcome our natural state to produce this. Therefore, it is God who is worthy of of thanksgiving and praise for it. Grace Baptist, I must tell you that I I share in Paul's sentiments here. I am genuinely grateful to God for the love that exists within our congregation. I shared this at the first Wednesday prayer meeting this week, which 
uh, is an encouragement, shameless plug. You should come to the first Wednesday prayer meeting so that you can hear things like this. But I, uh, I shared this already. It, it, on a personal level, I, I feel tremendously blessed to know that, that our church genuinely loves me and my family. And not just in attitude, but in actions. I know that the people in this room love us because you've shown it to us. I'm grateful not just on a personal level, but on a pastoral level. I've been privileged to see this church care for one one another in ways that many pastors don't get to see and experience. I can recount story after story of pastor friends of mine that, that, frankly, in light of the metric that Paul applies here, my friends are not even certain that they have a flock of sheep. They tell stories that are much more reflective of a herd of goats rather than a flock of sheep. But I'm grateful to God that I can say that while I am no one's ultimate judge, when I rub up against the members of this church, I sense the wool of sheep and not the hair of goats. We should praise God for that, church. That's no small thing. It's a testimony of the supernatural work of God among us. And it's a testimony that not all churches have. Frankly, far too few churches have this confidence of the mutual love shared between members of its congregation. Praise God, church. But the apostle not only gives thanks to God for the Ephesians' spiritual life, he goes on to pray for their spiritual development. And so we move on to consider the content of Paul's prayer for them. The content of Paul's prayer for them. In verse 16 we read, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Indicating here a transition from thankfulness for them to supplication for them. What supplication did he make? That... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The content of Paul's prayer is that God would grant them illumination. That is to say, Paul is asking God to grant the Ephesians light and sight for seeing God as He really is. This is what we call the doctrine of illumination. That's what biblical wisdom and revelation is really about. Seeing God for who He truly is. In His asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Paul does not mean that he's pleading that God would grant the Holy Spirit to the Ephesians. We saw from verse 13 last week that it's upon belief in Christ through the message of the gospel that we receive the Holy Spirit. Rather, to quote one commentator here, spirit here is neither exclusively the Holy Spirit nor the spirit of man, but the complex idea of the spirit of man dwelt in and moved by the spirit of God. 
But that begs the question, to what end is Paul asking this? Well, wisdom that he says here, the spirit of wisdom, wisdom in general refers not not just to the attainment of, but the application of the knowledge of God. But that begs then another question. Well, how do we come to possess this wisdom? And let me say first, what does not produce godly wisdom? And then we'll consider what does. First of all, godly wisdom does not come, as some say, through the light of nature. And this is easy enough to refute, as Paul, in these verses, is petitioning God for divine aid in order to possess this wisdom and knowledge. It does not come naturally to the mind of man. We need divine help to get it. But on the other end of the spectrum, it does not come by way of ongoing messages from God on an individual level. That kind of thinking about wisdom that comes from God relegates the knowledge of God to the category of mystery. That's the type of Gnosticism that the Apostle John refuted in his writings. Instead, by simply following the logic of Paul in verse 17, we come to understand that the wisdom of God comes by revelation of Himself to His people. In asking that the Ephesian Christians would be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, He's asking God to grant divine aid in understanding the revelation that God has already given of Himself. I'm reminded of that text in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, that's so often quoted only in part. When people can't seem to make sense of why God acts in the way that he does, you hear them quote the first part of Deuteronomy 29, 29, saying, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Yet the second part of the verse seems to be forgotten. Because Moses goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Friends, God has not left us with the simple command to worship and praise Him without a way to understand the manner of His being and His decrees. Our God is one who has graciously revealed a great deal of Himself to us. And where do we find this revelation? In the Scriptures, of course. Paul's ask is that God would grant the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Where do we find the revelation of the knowledge of God? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And in John chapter 14, Jesus promises His apostles that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so it was, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, that the apostles taught and wrote concerning the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Friends, if we desire to grow in the knowledge of God, we must receive what the apostles have written in the Scriptures. God has authorized no other means by which we come to know Him. Yet, the capacity to understand what He has revealed is certainly out of our natural reach. But what Paul's prayer in these verses reveals to us is that God is all too happy to lend divine aid to us in coming to understand who He is from the revelation that He's given about Himself in the Bible. While inspiration is how we speak of the nature of Scripture, illumination is how we speak of our understanding the Scriptures. And it's a work of God. That's not to say that one can't understand the arguments and the truth claims of Scripture that are articulated in normal grammar and syntax. That's definitely possible. But illumination is the work of God to make the truth of Scripture come alive within us. Illumination is what converts the truths of Scripture from mere words on a page to conviction and encouragement. Illumination is what turns the text of Scripture into that which, to quote Psalm 19, revives the soul. Illumination is what makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, and enlightens the eyes. Illumination is what enables us to behold the God of the Bible in the Bible. And this illumination is what Paul prays for for these believers at Ephesus. And he prays in this way because illumination leads to sanctification. Growth in godliness is the aim of illumination. You'll remember that Jesus prays to the Father in His high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Sanctification is the goal, friends. Yet if the very hearing of the Scriptures is what would save and sanctify people, then we should just go around with our Bibles, reading it aloud to everyone. But it isn't. We need the Spirit of God to enable not only our minds to understand, understand, but our souls to embrace the scriptural truths about God and His commitments and His actions and His promises. Isn't that the difference? Isn't that the difference in the Christians you know who are just big-headed Bible junkies? The ones you know who read their Bibles a lot, but they don't seem to reflect the love of Christ. They don't seem to embody the peace that passes all understanding. There are those kinds of data heads, and then there are those who seem like they come away from their Bible reading like they've actually met with God. And in meeting Him, they've been changed by Him to reflect more of Him. Illumination is the difference, friends. And this is why in verse 18, Paul likens our experience of illumination to having the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
The experience of illumination as we read the Word of God is like having been blind and then receiving sight. If you're a Christian who's been reading your Bible for very long, you know this experience. You come to read a portion of Scripture that you may have read and studied several times before. You know the context and you know the point that the author is making in the text. But all of a sudden, as you read it again, you come to see that it reveals something about the character of God that you've not noticed before. You come to see that it has relevant implications and applications for your life that you weren't aware of previously. And it convicts you. It encourages you. It, it, it emboldens you and enables you and moves you to submit to God and to render worship to God in a manner that you hadn't previously experienced from that particular text. You see, the, the doctrine of illumination is what makes the Scriptures inexhaustible to us. We may know a text of Scripture thoroughly. You, you may have memorized large portions of a book and be able to articulate exactly what the author's point is in writing it. But the doctrine of illumination is what keeps us coming back to the Scriptures. Even those ones that we know so well. Because God may not have shown you all that that specific text says about Himself or, or how it applies to the particular situation that you're in. And so we keep coming back to the text of Scripture because it's inexhaustible. What this text teaches us is that when we come to the Bible humbly and we ask God to feed our souls from His Word, that is what He delights to do. The only reason that we fail to ask God for illumination is that we either think too much of ourselves or we think too little of God. We think too much of ourselves and our ability naturally to grasp the fullness of God's revelation or we think too little of God and His ability to empower us to grasp that revelation. Those are the only two options. But God, or excuse me, Paul here has no small view of God in mind. He, he speaks not of a God who is incompetent or impotent. Look at verse 10, verse 17. Consider how Paul refers to God as he asks for illumination among the Ephesian believers. He prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And as you know, glory often in the scriptures is associated with God's power. This is a glorious God who possesses all power and ability to do as he pleases. So we understand that not only is he glad to grant illumination when we ask it, but he is gloriously able to grant illumination and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. In reflecting on this text, I was reminded this week of the event in Luke 18 when Jesus gave sight to the blind beggar. Luke records that 
in the midst of a crowd, a, a blind beggar cried out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Luke goes on to record, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And what does Luke tell us is the result of that event? He says, And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. That church is precisely what Paul is asking for here. And it's precisely what we should be asking for each time we come to the Scriptures. God, give us sight. Help me to see you better. That I might see myself better and the world around me more clearly. And we ask these things not just so that we can grow in our intellect. Not just so that we can have something to say in the lively theology debates. We ask these things because when He grants us sight, we're like the blind beggar who can only respond by getting up to follow Jesus and to glorify God all the more. And so God, we ask this morning that You would do just that. That You would make us a people who experience Your illumination. Lord, we pray, God, that we would be a people who are committed to your word and desire this spirit of revelation and wisdom. And that in doing so, Lord, that you would make us a people of the book. God, give us a strong, faithful commitment to your word. And in it, God, we do pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would be a people who are not just big-headed theology thinkers, but that we're people who love Christ. And in loving Christ, we come to love and serve one another. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.